It is a joy to be here with you this morning, and uh, all of Brampton, at least our church, sends greetings. There's half a million people there, and uh, it was a joy uh, to work with Ray. We were, um, when, when Ray first got hired, we actually shared a room together, uh, probably uh, it was a it was a ten ten by ten room or so eight by eight room and everything every conversation Ray had I was in on it every conversation I had Ray heard and we got to know each other really well that first year and uh, the Lord has blessed you uh, with a great godly man and uh, so thankful for Ray and Natalie they are very close and precious to us. So glad that he is in uh, Brantford this morning and blessing that people. It's actually kind of a whole switcheroo. I'm here in Ottawa, our senior pastors in Whitby, and your senior pastors in Brantford, and uh, another one of our pastors preaching at our church. And so it's just such a blessing to be a part of this thing called the GCC, this Great Commission Collective, where we can just share and help one another, feed uh, one another with the Word of God. It's so good to be on, on the same team. Well, great. Well, we are going to be opening up our Bibles and looking at 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 12. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. You, uh, like our church, we meet in a gym and uh, we don't have any uh, pew Bibles, but we have great ushers. And so they're going to be handing out Bibles to you. If you need one, just raise your hand. They'd be happy to put a Bible in that hand. And when you get that, just flip it open to 1 Samuel chapter 12. Well, recently, uh, there was a time where I was uh, in our house recently, just downstairs, I think it was at the kitchen table, enjoying a book, I was reading, and all of a sudden, I hear these screams of injustice coming from upstairs in the hallway, just these these outcries of some sort of injustice that had happened, and I, I quickly sense, you know, as a parent, you can kind of get that feel that if I don't engage right now, I may not have one of my kids at the supper table here tonight. And so you, you fly up the stairs, and that's what I did. I ran up the stairs, and I got into the hallway, and what used to be a, a fun play area had transformed into a courtroom. And one of my children, they're all here today, and so they know who this is, uh, all of, one of my children were, one of my children, they were really taking on the role of a crown attorney and just pr- prosecuting my other kid and trying to extract a guilty confession from him or her and to no avail. And so by this time, my other three kids and our dog had all gathered as witnesses and they were all shouting and barking their version of the story of what happened. And there was a point, I honestly admit, where I'm just thinking, this would be a lot easier if I just grounded everyone. I mean, just flat out, you're all grounded, you know. But what I really needed to do at that point was to ask and figure out what happened here. Why the cries of injustice? What really went on? And what does it look like moving forward? And that's what we kind of find out here in 1 Samuel chapter 12. What was a celebration, what was really kind of a a party, so to speak, had transformed into a courtroom where there was a judge, there was an attorney, and there was an accused. And so why don't we read here, and to begin, we'll just read the end part of chapter 11, chapter 11, verse 14. And that'll give us some context to the next chapter. Chapter 11, verse 14 says, Then Samuel said to the people, Come, 
Come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. And so all the people went to Gilgal. And there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Samuel's here and he summons. Samuel summons all of Israel to Gilgal. He says, come, let's meet in Gilgal. Now, Israel thought, we're going for a party. They just got a a party invitation. They're RSVPing to that. They're thinking, this is great. It's great because they had just come from a battle, a battle that they won. They had just made Saul their king. And Saul had led them into battle against the Amorites, as we'll find out. And won a great victory. And so they thought, okay, Samuel's saying, hey, let's get together and let's really renew our commitment to Saul. Saul's our king. We love Saul. Saul's great. And so they're pretty eager to RSVP and go. But they didn't realize yet what the invitation was really about. You see, they had made, Israel had made Saul their king. They had asked for a king like the other nations. That's actually what the word Saul means. The name Saul means asked for. They had asked Samuel for a worldly king like all the other nations. They're kind of done with this God thing. I mean, God just kind of leading them and overseeing them and presiding over them as king. We can't see him. We, We want a king that we can see and touch and we can watch lead us into battle. And so God said, okay, here you go. And he gave them what they had asked for as really handing them over in judgment. And so that's really what Samuel was calling them to Gilgal for. You see, in asking for a different king and rejecting God as their king and asking for Saul, they were breaking God's covenant, the agreement, the promise that he had made with them. And they were breaking that. And Samuel wanted to renew the covenant. That's what that means when he says here in chapter 11, he wanted to renew the kingdom. He wanted to renew God's kingdom. He wanted to renew Israel's commitment to come under God as the true king. Yes, you can keep Saul, but you have to acknowledge that he is just a representative under the true king. Let's get back to Gilgal. Let's get back to the covenant and renew it. But that wasn't really in Israel's mind. They were completely oblivious to their sins. You see that actually in verse 15 where they come and they sacrifice peace offerings to the Lord. Nothing wrong with peace offerings, Peace offerings are are really an expression that we're good with God. There's peace between me and God, us and God. And so there's a real celebration. But when you look in the Old Testament, peace offerings are always coupled with things like sin offerings and burnt offerings. Sin offerings really deal with the sin that separates us between God and us. And burnt offerings are a sacrifice that's given in which the whole sacrifice is totally burnt as an expression of total devotion. They're totally surrendered to God. And so you need those two sacrifices and those two offerings before you get to the peace offerings. But Israel's like, we don't need any sin offerings or burnt offerings. We're good. We're good with God. 
He's, he's over there. We're obviously good. We won the battle. We just want to celebrate. We just want to give some peace offerings and really, really celebrate King Saul. I mean, didn't he lead us into battle well? Isn't he amazing? And that's what they're gathering for. And they don't realize that Samuel's actually subpoenaed them to come. And he realizes that before they can even get to the point of realizing they have broken the covenant with God, before they even can realize that they need to confess and repent, they need to be aware of what they've even done. And so Samuel, as a prophet, really kind of picks up, so to speak, his lawyer gown and begins to lay out a case to Israel as to what they have done and why they have been called to Gilgal. And so we read in chapter 12 here in the first couple of verses, Samuel said to all of Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice and all that you have said to me and have made a king over you. The first thing that Samuel does as a lawyer is really to clear his own name. He wants to make sure that Israel knows, before I get into the nitty-gritty here of what you've done, I just want you to know that I'm, I'm innocent of this. I, I, didn't, I didn't lead you into this. I didn't set you up. And he does this in two ways. And the first is to say, when you, when you asked for a king, I obeyed your voice. Earlier in the book, it says that Samuel came to God and said, what do I what do? I do? And God says, give them what they asked for, literally Saul. And so he did. Now that's really unique. That's very unique. You see, all of the judges or leaders of Israel up to this point, Samuel was considered a judge and a leader, had really been so as soon as God had made them a judge or leader for the rest of their life until they died. And we see that often Throughout our world, in fact, all of world history, once someone was in power, like a king or a queen, they were so until they died. But not Samuel. Samuel was made a judge and a leader of Israel, but here we see him let it go. He relinquished it. He didn't hold on to it like a tyrant or a dictator. He didn't hold his office. No, he, he let it go. And it's because Samuel never lost sight of who the true king was. He knew that the Lord was king of Israel. And he was a representative of God to bring judgment and leadership. But it was God who called the shots. And when God said, give them what they asked for, give them a king, Samuel stepped down from your role as judge and leader. He said, yes, God. Yes, king. And so he says, I'm innocent in this matter. But the second thing Samuel does is this. If we read in verse 3, he says, Here I am, testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. That's Saul. He was anointed king. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me, and I will restore it to you. And they said, You have not defrauded us, or oppressed us, or taken anything from any man's hand. So not only is Samuel willing to relinquish his office of, as leader, but he says, The whole time that I was leader, I didn't do you wrong. 
I was righteous to you. I was innocent to you. I was good to you. I didn't oppress you. I didn't take bribes and twist justice and show partiality in any way. I was good to you. I did nothing that would provoke you to say, we want a better judge or we want a better leader. He was good. He was good to them. He gave them no reason or cause to say, we want somebody else. So he lays out this case. You've sinned. I haven't even gotten to what you've done yet. But I just want you to know, I didn't lead you there. And now he's going to say, neither did God. You know, sometimes there's different ways in our life that we perceive and feel like an injustice has happened to us. Maybe you've been at work and you've been kind of working away and and you know that there was this promotion coming up and so you put in the time and you put in the hours and you're even kind of getting some hints that this was going to be yours and then all of a sudden someone else got it. And you're just like, what? I mean, I, mean, I, I checked all the boxes. I did everything I was supposed to and, and there can be like a root of bitterness that can grow because there's this outstanding justice factor that's, that never has been satisfied, never been met and you just kind of, and you kind of let it, it eats away and it eats away. But that doesn't happen here to Samuel because he's committing it to God. Yeah, they've rejected Samuel. They've rejected him, but God says to Samuel, when they reject you, they're rejecting me. Don't take it personal. Come to me. Talk to me about it, and I will go talk to them. And that's exactly what he does here. In verse 5, he says, And Samuel said to them, the Lord is witness against you and his anointed is witness this day, that's Saul, that you have not found anything in my hand. So I'm not gonna gonna take matters into my own hand. I'm giving this to God, God's witness. He sees everything, he knows everything. Nothing gets lost with God. He knows it all. He is witness. I'm not gonna take matters into my own hand. I'm gonna commit it to the Lord. I'm gonna cast all my cares upon him because he cares for me. And it's interesting what Israel says. They're right at the end of the verse 5. They said, he is witness. Now, I remember when I would get caught in, for doing something wrong. And it's just so hard to get those words out. You're right. I'm sorry. And... Sometimes it's easier if someone came to you and said, you know, you really shouldn't have done that to your friend. And you're like, you're, yeah, you're right, but I'm not going to tell him. And there's this kind of like side conversation going on because you, you're just starting to admit it, but you're not willing to admit it to the actual person that you offended. And that's, what, that's what's going on here. Samuel just said, the Lord is witness and Saul is witness, the anointed, of, all, of what you have done and what I have done. And Israel responds and says, oh yeah, he's witness. We'll, we'll acknowledge Saul. We'll tell Saul, Saul, it was really wrong of us you know, to treat Samuel this way. But they totally ignore God. They haven't even acknowledged God. It's like he's not even there in Gilgal. And so that's why Samuel says in verse 6, the Lord is witness. He's the one who sees it all. You you can't just dismiss him and diss him like that. He's right here. Whether you acknowledge him or not, he is here and he is witness, which means he sees everything. And now 
He's going to move from witness to judge. He's the one who's actually going to give a verdict on the situation. The Lord is here and he is judge. Verse 7 says, Now therefore stand still, Samuel says, that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. You know, like in a classroom, when a teacher's really starting to, I don't know, get heated about the kids in the classroom and they're all kind of standing maybe at the back and there's a few at the back, they're like, this is a good time to kind of leave and they're kind of starting to slide out the back and, and that's what's happening here. You have all of Israel gathered in Gilgal and Samuel's laying out the case and it's starting to get a little hot and he starts to see a few people trickle out the back. He's like, stand still. I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you all that God has done for you, how good he's been to you. I mean, I didn't do anything wrong and treat you bad, but man, we haven't even got to how good God's been to you. You need to stand still and listen to all the goodness of God and how he has given you no reason to rebel against him and choose a different king. He begins to walk through for the next several passages of how God went to them in Egypt when Israel was enslaved under Pharaoh in Egypt and God sent them, Moses and Aaron, to rescue them up out of Egypt and how God brought them into the promised land. But then they rebelled against God. They forgot about God. They wanted to be like the other nations. And so they, God handed them over to the very thing that they wanted. And they began to go after other gods like the Asherahs and Moloch and Baal. Gods that required their adherents to murder and commit sexual morality and sacrifice their own children in the fire. And they gave, God gave them over to what they wanted. They wanted that. And they were oppressed by these very nations they wanted to be like. Until they cried out to God and say, God, we've done wrong. Please forgive us. Please rescue us and deliver us. And this would happen again and again. And God would send them. Send them people like Samson and Gideon and Jephthah and Barak. And even Samuel himself. To rescue them again and again out of the hands of the Ammonites and the Philistines and the Moabites. And all of these surrounding nations that they had become enslaved to. God was kind to them again and again and again. And Samuel lays all of this out for them. Why? Verse 12. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Amorites, that's the recent battle that just happened before they gathered in Gilgal. When Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us. When the Lord your God was your king. Samuel finally gets to the point. He's like, look at all of God's faithfulness, his mercy, his kindness. He's so patient. He's so loving. He's so loyal to you. And now, when this recent event happened, when the Ammonites came after you, you're like, forget God. Enough of that. We want ourselves our own king, a human king, a king that was going to be like the other nations to lead us into battle. And Samuel's like, but you already had a king. 
You already had a king. He's been watching over you for centuries. He's been caring for you. He's been providing for you. And he gets to lay the accusation down against Israel. Israel, you have committed treason. He accuses Israel. Israel now stands accused of treason, of pawning off God, of trading him out, exchanging him for other gods. This is really the essence of sin. When we exchange God for something else, when we pawn him off, when we want something else and we think this is going to be more satisfying, this is going to be better for me. God's great and all. I know he's got some great promises and he says he's really good in his character, but I don't know. This is looking way better. So I'm going to exchange him for this, whatever this is. And Jeremiah 2 talks about the insanity of this kind of exchange. Jeremiah 2, 11 to 13 says, Has a nation, this is God speaking, has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. Why? For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Isn't it interesting how God describes himself here? He describes himself as this fountain of living water, this spring of clean, clear, fresh, cool, ever-flowing water that you can drink from and be refreshed again and again and be satisfied. And Israel says, that's garbage water. I can get better water than that. And they exchange God. They leave him behind and they trust themselves to go find better water. So what do they do? They, they dig out these cisterns. Now, I grew up on a farm. I don't know if you know what a cistern is, but we'd see these on the farm. They're basically like rain barrels in the ground. And they collect water. Any water that falls, like rain or dew, it gathers and collects and trickles down into this cistern, this, this container or hole in the ground. Now the key in cistern making is to make sure there's no cracks in the cistern so that all the water actually stays. But look at these cisterns that Israel had carved out for themselves were broken. They were leaking. So, I mean, at best, the water that goes into a cistern is stagnant, and when it trickles down in, it's not only just falling in, other things are falling in, like branches and sticks and dirt and mud and animals, and then they start dying and decomposing in the bottom of it. And now, so at best, it's not great water. But now there's no water in it. They're broken cisterns. All the water had leaked out into the surrounding soil. And all that's left in the bottom of these cisterns is this moist muck, this sludge that Israel's picking up and going, mm, oh, this is way better, way more satisfying than this fountain of living water. And God said, this is insane. I mean, you're, you're, you're licking sludge and you're saying, this is way better than me, this fountain of living water. But this is what we do. Every time 
we choose something other than God. When we say, you know, God, I, I know you've been good, or you say you've got some good promises, or you say you're this or that in your character, but do you know what? This is actually better. I'm going to treasure this more. I'm going to believe the promises that this will give me, whatever it is. It can be anything. We can take anything in our life, even good things, and make them ultimate things, and they become bad things. We can take any gift from God and make it not just the gift, but God itself, and it becomes an idol in our life, a cistern that we go to for water. We treasure it. It can be anything from marriage or family or health, work and a job. Could be entertainment and escapes, camping, Netflix, and it could be much more evil things than that. Anything that we go to and trust in, this is what's going to comfort me. This is what's going to relieve me of my pain or at least numb it a bit. This is what's going to distract me for a while so I don't have to think about my pain or sorrow. This is what's going to give me meaning and purpose in life. This is what's going to really establish my significance and value as a man or as a woman. And we go to these things rather than God, the fountain of living water. And God says, this is insanity. Don't do this. This is sin. Come. Come back. And he's, Samuel's laying this case out for Israel. But you know, like sometimes it doesn't really matter how airtight and crystal clear your argument is. When we are set in our ways and we're holding on to our cisterns and our idols, it just doesn't matter what anyone's saying. And it's almost like Samuel's talking and they're like, yeah, 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 Samuel, what's the big deal? Okay, like, so you were really good. We acknowledge that, but we're really excited about Saul still. What's the big deal? Why are you still harping on this? Obviously, God's not really upset about it. He hasn't said anything, and we just won a big battle, so he's obviously happy with us. I don't, I don't know what your big deal is, Samuel. And we can do that, right? We can, we can go into grocery stores, and we're driving into the parking lot, and we see there's a parking spot right there in front of the front door, and you're just like, clearly, the Lord is smiling on me, right? Clearly. I mean, who else? God is only reserving this for his for his chosen people, and this parking spot is, it doesn't matter if I've been cheating on my taxes for five years. Parking spot tells me I'm good with God. Or maybe I just got my, my grades back from university, and I, I'm, I got straight A's. I'm just like, I'm amazing. God, you must be so happy with me and because you helped me get these straight A's. It doesn't matter I've been sleeping around. It doesn't matter what I've been looking at on the internet for the last three years of my degree. God, I, you, I must be good with you. My grades are great. And this is what Samuel is trying to help Saul and the Israelites realize, hey, just because you won a victory doesn't mean you're good with God. He's calling them back. And sometimes you just kind of get to the point where a healthy dose of the fear of God helps. And that's what happens here. The Lord actually chimes in. And it literally says, here's the judge, God as judge, who's been listening to all of this, and now it's time for him to give his verdict. And he literally thunders in with his voice. And the verdict that he brings is guilty as charged. Guilty as charged. The verdict is 
guilty. Look at verse 17. Is this not wheat harvest today, Samuel says? Yet I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain. And you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord, in asking for yourselves a king. And so Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. They greatly feared. Remember, only a few verses before, they were greatly rejoicing. In who? In Saul, in this victory. But they were completely deluded. And now they are greatly afraid because they realize what they have done. The word here literally, he thundered, verse 17, he sent thunder and rain. That's actually the same word that's used in verse 15, the voice of the Lord, literally the thunder of the Lord. And in verse 14, where you obey his voice, this is the thunder of God. It literally is he's thundering his verdict. And this isn't kind of like any storm. I mean, it's it's kind of like if snow were starting to fall in July in Ontario. Like, it just doesn't happen. Or if there was a hailstorm in Jamaica. It just doesn't ever happen. Like, it's, it's, this is crazy weather. This is so out of the ordinary. And Samuel said, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to pray, and this is going to happen. And you're going to know that this is what God thinks of this situation. And we're not talking about any, like, normal thunderstorm. This is like, I'm going to die kind of thunderstorm. This is kind of those, the rain, the sheets of rain are coming so heavy, so fast, you can just barely breathe in between the sheets of rain. Thunder just clapping over your head, so powerful and so strong that you're constantly crouching. It's like bombs going off over your head. Lightning striking all around you, hair on your body constantly rising and falling because you're like, this is it. The next one's going to strike me. That's the kind of cowering, I'm going to flee for my life thunderstorm that God was bringing to Israel. And it's interesting he's bringing it to Israel because these are the kind of thunderstorms God brings to his enemies. If we look back a few chapters earlier at the beginning of Samuel's ministry, his, he had just become judge and leader of Israel. And he had called them to another town, another place called Mizpah. And they all gathered and fasted and prayed to renew their covenant with God, their devotion to God. But the Philistines started to gather around them like, oh, they're easy pickings. They're at a worship, they're at a worship conference right now, and they're not even ready for war. This is a great time to ambush them. So the Philistines gathered all around them and were about to attack Israel. And what did Samuel do? He prayed to the Lord. And the Lord thundered against the Philistines and they were routed. They scattered. And Israel was delivered and saved. But now we see God thundering against his own people who had become his enemies because they had broken the covenant with God. And he was thundering the curses of the covenant over them. This is all, this is all that happens when you break covenant with God. And he's thundering. This is, this is what can happen. This is about to happen. But they finally get it. They finally get it. You see here in verse 19, all the people said to Samuel, pray, pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. The scripture says the wages of sin is death. We deserve to die. 
For we have added to all of our sins this evil, to ask for ourselves a king. They get the message finally, loud and clear. And so Samuel, who had been acting as a lawyer, takes off his lawyer gown and puts on his priestly robes. And as a prophet, he prays and he says this to Israel. Probably the most shocking words in this whole passage. In verse 20, he says, Do not be afraid. That's amazing. Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil yet, but do not be afraid. There are so many yets and buts in the scripture where just when you think all of this is going to get unleashed, there's a but. There's a yet that comes in. And Samuel is saying to Israel, there's still yet room. There's still yet room for God's mercy. Yes, you are accused of treason, Israel. Yes, God has said you're guilty as charged. But the sentence is mercy. The sentence is mercy. What kind of a God is this? Who again and again tells his people who have sinned and broken covenant with him, do not be afraid. You know that's the, that is the, uh, there's, there's more commands in scripture that say do not be afraid than any other command in scripture. God is constantly telling his people, do not fear. Do not be afraid. Why? How can God get away with this? How can God say, don't be afraid? The, the sentence is mercy. Well, in verse 22, he answers, for, that's the reason why, for the Lord will not forsake his people. He won't wipe you out, Israel. He's given you a promise. He's not going to wipe you out. That's why. For the, it says here, the Lord will not forsake his people. That's why he, he says mercy instead of judgment. Well, well, why? Why is God so faithful all the time to Israel? Why is he just constantly faithful to show them mercy again and again? Let's keep reading. It says, for the Lord will not forsake his people. Why? For his great name's sake. Because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. It pleased the Lord to choose Israel and to attach himself to this people, to tie his name to them so that whatever happens to them reflects on God. If they turn away from God and can't get steered back, well, I guess God's not really that powerful. He, he can't control his people. If his people get attacked and they get wiped out, I guess God's not that strong. I guess he can't actually care for his people. If his people are out in the wilderness and they die of famine and starvation, well, I guess God's not really that strong. He can't provide. And so everything that happens to the people of Israel reflects on the God of Israel. And God says, for my namesake, I cannot let this nation just go and get wiped out because I've tied my name to them. I've given them promises. 
I promise them that I will keep showing them mercy again and again. Then you might be wondering, okay, that's nice, but isn't God a God of justice? I mean, isn't he a holy God? It, it says that, doesn't it? So is God just kind of sweeping these sins under the rug? Is, what's he doing this? I mean, he can't just turn a blind eye to this forever. What's he going to do? Or is God not just? And so what we feel and see is this growing tension all throughout the Old Testament that God has made these incredible promises of loyal love and mercy to his people at the same time promise that he will judge sin. He is a holy God and he must judge sin. And he, how is he going to fulfill this, this tension? And it builds and it builds all throughout the Old Testament. I mean, you see it right at the very beginning here in Deuteronomy 9 with Moses. Moses is crying out here in, in Deuteronomy 9. O Lord, do not destroy your people or your heritage, whom you have redeemed through your greatness, whom you've brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. So they've sinned. Here they've sinned, and, and Moses is interceding for them. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's important. Abraham, that promise you made to Abraham, remember that. Don't remember, don't look at our sin right now. Please remember that promise you made to Abraham. Lest the land from which you brought us up say, that's Egypt, unless the Egyptians say, oh, it's because the Lord's not able to bring them into the land that he promised them. And because he hated them. And because he brought them out to put them to death in the wilderness. So all these accusations against the name of God. If, you, if we get wiped out, that's what the Egyptians are going to say. For, you, for they are your people, Moses says, and your heritage, whom you brought out by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Moses knows God is holy. He knows that he is just. And he says, please, please have mercy on us who have rebelled against you. Remember the promise you made to Abraham, this promise he made back in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, that you will show loyal love to the descendants of Abraham. Please remember that promise. Don't look on our sin. Please forgive us of our sin now for your namesake so that you can say to Abraham, I kept my promise. And you can say to us and the Egyptians, I am God and I am able to provide and I am able to care and sustain my people, for the name, for his name's sake. Again, the psalmist in Psalm 79 feels this tension as well. He says, help us, O God, of our salvation, for the glory of your name, deliver us, and atone for our sins, for your name's sake. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Don't forgive us, because we deserve to be forgiven, that we're so great, because your name is so great, and you have made a promise to us to be merciful to us. Spare your name. Don't let the nation say this about you. Please forgive us. And God himself explains how in Isaiah 48, why he does this again and again and again. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you. Not just praise out of Israel for his forgiveness, but for all the nations to say, who is this God? Who is this God who is so loyal, so merciful? 
Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will give to no other or not to another. God is saying, I can't, I can't share my glory. I can't, it's not like there's several names up here. There's one name, his name that he must protect. Why? Is it because God's a megamaniac? Like he's all about himself? He's he just full of ego? Or No, it's because he alone is God. He, he can't, it's not like there's a, a smorgasbord of all these different options out there. He's like, well, that's a good option there. And if you pr- have that preference, you can go over there. No, he's like, I'm the one true and living God. I'm the only fountain. Everything else is cisterns. I have to. It's only loving and right and true of me to point all nations to myself. Because there is no other option. There is no other God. I have to share myself with everyone. I got to point them to me. That is what it means for God's namesake, for his glory. Glory literally means weight or heaviness. And God's heaviness, if you were to add up all of the value of his character and of his words and of all that he has done in his deeds and all he has done, you you try to weigh it, you'd blow the scale because the weight of his value is immeasurable. It's infinite. And so his glory is, The value of his weight, of his worth, is infinite. And he must uphold this infinitely weighty and valuable name to all nations. And you have this tension. If he he keeps showing mercy, he'll uphold his name. But if he stops showing mercy, it'll fall. But he's got to show justice to uphold his name, but if he... If he pours out his full justice on Israel, then he'll break that promise and then it'll fall. And so there's this tension. How how is he going to keep his mercy and his justice together? And then he explains in Ezekiel 20. God resolves the tension by saying, you shall know. You shall know that I am the Lord when I deal with you for my name's sake. Not according to your evil ways. Nor according to your corrupt deeds, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. God promises that one day he's going to deal with this tension. He's going to deal with the sins and the mercy. And that day finally comes. Where in Luke 2 we read an angel declaring to some shepherds, Fear not! Don't be afraid! There it is again. Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ, that means anointed king, is Christ the Lord. This is what Mary shouted earlier in one chapter, one chapter earlier in Luke 1 when Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Why, Mary? Because he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. This is God's solution. He, this is his resolution to the tension that he himself has to come 
God the Son comes in order to settle this tension between the mercy of God and the justice of God. God sends his Son to come and become a man, to become a person who could take on other person's sins. He lived a perfect life, went to the cross, carried all of our sins so that he might deal with the tension. He might satisfy justice by dying on the cross and satisfy God's mercy by carrying it and satisfying it and paying for it on behalf of others. This is exactly what Romans 3 says and how it explains how Jesus, this king, this Christ Jesus, was the one whom God put forward as a propitiation. That fancy word just means that God's God's justice is satisfied. This is how God's justice is going to be satisfied with him. God put forward Jesus as the way his justice is going to be satisfied. How? By his blood which means the blood that was shed when he died on the cross. So then how does that get applied to me? It's received by faith. When I trust in Jesus, when I believe that Jesus is God's son who became a human and took and lived a perfect life and yet went to the cross and took on all of my sins and then swallowed all of my hell on the cross, all the wrath of God, satisfying all of the justice of God that had been stored up in these warehouses in heaven. It's not like God was just ignoring all this stuff. The word atonement in the Old Testament means literally to cover, not to wash away. And so all these sins were being covered and covered and covered year after year, decade after decade, century after century, until finally, you just imagine the warehouses in heaven of all of the unpaid for sins, not only in the past, but also in the future. Jesus walked on earth 2,000 years ago. Can you imagine all the sins that Jesus had to carry on behalf of his people, and he paid for it all. And he totally satisfied God's justice so that it can say this was to show God's righteousness. God's name was on the line. His reputation had been kind of questioned for a couple millennia now because of this tension between his mercy and justice and God just settled the argument. This was to show God's righteousness. Why? Well, because of his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Remember, he had stockpiled them. And this was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God has said, I'm just. I've taken care of all of the sins of my people. Everyone I've ever showed mercy to or will show mercy to, I can show mercy to them because I have the receipt. I paid for their sins. So I'm not committing any injustice. I'm not cutting any corners. It's legit. I can legitimately justify sinners. So I uphold my name as both just and justifier or a merciful, a merciful God who can declare his people right in his sight. This is the good news of the gospel, that God is both just and justifier of sinners, not just for Israel, but for us, so that Israel and us, we can both say what it says here in 1 Samuel 12, 24, only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. Why? 
For consider what great things he has done for you. This is very similar to what Peter says in 1 Peter 2 verse 9. says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. You remember God tied his name to Israel? Now he ties his name to everyone who trusts in Christ. He ties his name to you and me who trust in him. So that he binds himself to us. So that he makes incredible promises to us. That he is, if you trust in him, he's washed you clean. He's adopted you as a child. He's given you a new heart. He's caused his spirit to dwell in you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. He will cause you to walk in paths of righteousness for his namesake. These are all true of you because he's tied his name to you. And he says here in 1 Peter, you are this, a people for his own possession, Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's what mercy does. It sings. Mercy always sings. You can't get shown grace and mercy without you responding in in song in some way. This is what Samuel's calling Israel to in chapter 12. To come back to the Lord and renew the covenant that you might be forgiven and know his mercy and sing his praises. And how much more we, we who have come to know Christ, we who have put our faith in him, who know what it's like to be forgiven of all of our sins and to be brought into, not just as a friend of God, but a child of God, brings us to his own table, makes a room for us in his home. Oh, what a good God this is. If you don't know Christ in this way, if you have yet to put your faith in Jesus, you need to trust in this Jesus. There's no other way. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father. No one gets right with God but by me. None of these cisterns will ever do. They never satisfy. They were never meant to. Only God satisfies. He is the fountain of living water. Come. Come to him. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. I will give you drink. All those who believe in me will never thirst again, he says in John. Come to him. And if you are trusting in Christ, keep coming to him. Keep drinking from the fountain of living water. Know your God and Savior. Let's pray. Father, we love you and thank you. Thank you that you are so good. And that, Lord, you knew all along, all along when people were beginning to wonder and doubt how you were going to resolve this tension between your justice and your mercy. You knew what you were going to do. You knew that you were going to come yourself and settle it. You were going to come yourself to fulfill all justice and to fulfill every promise of mercy in one act, in one person, in the Lord Jesus Christ. God, we love you. We thank you. We ask, Lord, that you would help us now to sing, to respond, and find a voice to praise you for your mercy that you have so lavishly shown us in your Son. Father, we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.